0: In preparation for last Thursday's progress report on the development of Starship, SpaceX's fully reusable spacecraft, company CEO Elon Musk tweeted out an exciting video depicting a Starship flight to Mars. He tweeted, this will be real in our lifetime. Jay, SpaceX has plans to send the first humans to Mars sometime in the 2020s, establishing a city in 2050. Well, that would be great, but how realistic is it, Jay?
1: It's uh, totally unrealistic, Tom. It's entirely a marketing publicity stunt for uh, Tesla Motors and all the other businesses that Musk runs. He clearly is not willing to discuss the long list of problems making getting to Mars in this coming uh, decade and having people live on Mars. Uh, He's either unaware, which I find hard to believe because he's certainly one of the smartest people on the planet. But everything he does is for publicity that keeps the Tesla stock up. And of course, he's doing good work with his reusable rockets and putting rockets up to send supplies to the space station. All of that is real. But putting a colony on Mars in the next couple of decades is absolutely impossible. And I think he really knows it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting if you actually look at the the time and the the distance to get to Mars, you have to follow a long loopy trajectory to get to Mars. It's like a thousand times farther in distance and about 83 times longer than the longest Apollo flight. Chris Hadfield, the former, well, he's Canadian and he's a former commander of the International Space Station, he said it's like paddling around in a canoe near Paris in the Seine River, and then saying, oh, we can do that. So now we can go to Australia. (laughs) Is that an exaggeration? Or do you think we're that far away from going to Mars?
1: I don't think it's an exaggeration at all. I think Chris Hadfield has nailed it. And people really need to understand that. The video that Musk put out showing a rocket landing on Mars. Any any computer programmer today can make a video like that. No big deal. And it has nothing to do with reality. It may be a a pretty show for a few minutes. And it might be what things look like many decades hence when we actually land a rocket. But we got to be talking about the rovers that we sent to Mars and what they are doing, what we've learned from it, and why that we really want to have a colony on Mars and spend billions and billions of dollars to do it. We abandoned the moon. We ought to go back to the moon. There would be a place to start and have people staying on the moon for significant lengths of time and doing research there. But I think it's totally unreliable, unre- unfeasible, and a publicity stunt to keep talking the way Musk does about putting a
0: colony on Mars. Well, to help give us some actual calculations and facts and figures to help us understand this better, we have a guest, Donald E. Polly. He was a United States Air Force cryptographic repairman and was awarded a marksmanship medal. After a start at the Bergstrom Air Force Base Aero Club in Texas, he went on to get a commercial pilot rating in airplane and helicopter. Don has worked as a television broadcast engineer for eight years, and he holds two color television patents. His current work is in crystal oscillatory and switching power design. He's also a space enthusiast, and with his great mathematical reasoning and skills, he's actually looked in-depth at the reusable rockets and the trips to Mars. We caught up with Don between presentations at a conference. So, welcome to the show, Don.
3: Glad to be
1: with you. Okay, Tom, I've been excited about doing a show on Mars for uh, quite some time, and I think our listeners will enjoy it all because between the three of us, we are all have very different opinions about America's interest in putting people on Mars, starting a colony, and it's just an interesting project. There can't be anybody out there that doesn't have an opinion. So my first question is, why does there appear to be so much interest in getting an American or Americans to Mars for a period of time? Tom, what's your opinion?
0: I think the main reason is that the United States wants to appear to leave the world as a free country in technology and adventureship and that sort of thing. And I think that's, of course, a lot of the reason that John Kennedy announced it, because it hugely boosted U.S. prestige at the time of the Vietnam War and at the time that the United States really needed it. And I certainly think that's the primary reason. Quite frankly, I think it's a good reason.
1: Well, I would agree with that part of it. But why did we uh, leave the moon, never go back? Or build on our huge success there?
0: Well, I think people got bored with the moon. (laughs) I think there wasn't anything new happening. The TV ratings were already going down by the second moon flight, Apollo 12. And by Apollo 13, they were really going down until they had a disaster. Until they had, well, it wasn't a disaster, but it was almost a disaster. And then the TV ratings came up. But within a couple of more missions, TV ratings went down. And the politicians just decided that, you know, there wasn't enough interest to keep it going. And they had lots of other issues to focus on.
1: Well, once again, Tom, I agree with you. Uh, Don, how do you feel about it? What are you, what's your opinion of why there does now uh, seem to be quite a passion about uh, getting to Mars, whether or not we ever do?
3: Well, for one thing, it's a lot cheaper with what Elon is doing than the Apollo programs were. Elon has gotten the price down by over five to one on launch vehicles, and it makes it much more affordable to do the same amount of rocket work.
1: Okay, well, I'll buy that, but there are plenty of places on Earth that are unlivable. What is the point of trying to exist on a planet that is so amazingly inhospitable, things that we already know about it? Why Do we venture such a difficult task?
3: Well, Edmund Hillary, when asked why he climbed Mount Everest, he said, because it's there. And I think that might be an explanation for why we're going back to Mars. It can be done and we're going to do it.
0: I think another thing, Jay, is it gives us a chance to start a truly independent new civilization because they're out of immediate contact with the home planet on the moon. I mean, you can have the police there in two or three days, no problem. But on Mars, they get a chance to start over, to start something truly new. And of course, there are people I think Don would fall into this category who actually believe that because of the fact that there's always some risk of An asteroid hitting the earth or having worldwide plague or disaster or war or whatever, that we'd better have some humans outside of this little valley that we're all in right now. Would you agree with that, Don?
3: I certainly would. Curiously enough, Phobos is the closest satellite of Mars, and it's about the same size as the asteroid that killed all the dinosaurs.
1: I think the whole thing is absurd. I will take the devil's advocate position though I agree, you know, it's there. And I like Don's quote of Edmund Hillary. So I I see it as a great scientific interest, but I totally oppose to the idea that it has value because the Earth, you know, may be destroyed by an asteroid. And therefore we start over with a few, a handful of people on this inhospitable planet. I just uh, see it, Uh, totally uh, as a a science experiment costing money that could be used better on Earth. Don, do you believe that for astronomical reasons of orbits and gravity to and from Mars with a human group must take almost three years for a round trip? Could you briefly explain why that would be?
3: Well, it's not a matter of me believing it. It's uh, pure mathematics. Every 778 days, the Earth and Mars are in the same relative position. And it's a classic example of Kentucky windage, where you got to point the rocket at where Mars is going to be eight months later. As a result of that, it takes eight months to get to Mars on a very curved trajectory. Once you're there, Mars is not convenient to the Earth. And you have to wait 540 days on Mars before you can take back off to the Earth. If you don't, the path is too long and you're going to run out of propellant. In addition to that, you've got 238 days or eight months coming back. So that works out to 1,016 days or 34 months.
1: I think this is a real shock to our listeners because pretty much everyone that understands rocketry to the space station, to our moon or to Mars, and everything they've learned is things that Elon Musk has put forth because he's dedicated himself to getting to Mars in his lifetime or even in this decade, have not heard of this unbelievable long round trip period. So uh, that's really news. I think you explain it well, but they have no idea. We we see Mars up in the sky and most people feel, well, we just send a rocket up there. Uh, It's anything but that simple. Now, you brought up the the moon of Phobos. I've had two very close friends who worked with NASA on uh, Neil Armstrong's first flight to the moon. It was very complicated. They also wanted to go to Mars, but felt we must first go to that moon that you mentioned, Phobos. Could you explain why uh, Phobos is a better place to, to start than Mars when Mars is actually so close to that moon?
3: Primarily because getting onto Mars, you've got to go through a fairly thick atmosphere to get to the surface. And it likes to burn up the spacecraft going down and it likes to fight the spacecraft going back up. And that takes roughly one-third of your propellant just to get through the atmosphere. If you land on Phobos, which is orbiting about three radii away from Mars, you have no atmosphere to contend with, you have a tiny gravity to contend with, you're able to save a huge amount of rocket fuel wind up close to Mars.
0: Don, I wanted to make one point. I worked with an anthropologist who actually studied the impact of exploration on the human culture and human psyche and things like that. And what he said is that the movement to Mars is important because it's the beginning of the expansion of humans into the universe. And that in fact, the exploration drive is an inherent part of the higher orders of the human nervous system. He says that we need to explore and expand to be fully healthy, that that is indeed part of our basic nature, the basic nature of humans built into our DNA effectively. So, I mean, do you guys think that that is a good reason to go to Mars, the beginning of the expansion into the universe?
1: Well, I I can't exactly disagree with it, but the risk reward to me is not worth it. Uh, I think that the amount of money we'll spend the lives that will be put at risk if we ever get a human to Mars make the risk too great for me. The, the reward is, is not worth it, but I understand the drive that people have, which uh, you express so well.
3: The Mars expedition to make fuel on Mars or provide habitats is going to take large amounts of electricity. There is a design that is being built right now for a one megawatt nuclear reactor that will fit in a standard shipping container. That nuclear reactor design, if it is perfected for Mars use, will pay for the entire cost of the Mars mission on Earth by building other reactors like it. That kind of a reactor can provide electricity for a town of 1,000. And would fit on the back of a a flatbed semi.
1: Do you believe that we really cannot go to Mars without nuclear power available when we're there or to get us there? Do we need nuclear power both in the rocketry or to survive on Mars or both?
3: My latest calculation is that if Elon refuels his starship in low Earth orbit, he can probably get to Mars with four tons of payload. And he might well be able to get back to Earth. Without a reactor to power a propellant plant, there is no Mars expedition.
0: So you're saying that it would actually be a driver for technologies that we could use on Earth. I mean, that's one of the main reasons that some of the people justify our moon trip, is that it led to lightweight electronics and all kinds of things that we now take for granted.
1: I was going to sort of make a joke. One of the very few things that came out of the Indianapolis 500 race is the rear view mirror. (laughs) People are are surprised to know that before we started racing around that oval, we didn't have rear view mirrors on the earliest of cars. And of course, in going to uh, the moon, I recall there was some kind of high calorie, high vitamin uh, drink that was invented and used on the moon. So I would agree that in the process of going to Mars, we would develop and invent a lot of very worthwhile things. So I I have to be in in your court on that area. There are a lot of good things that would happen if we just keep trying to go to Mars.
3: Let me give you an idea of my point. I uh, have heard Elon say that he's going to use renewable energy to make rocket fuel. In order to get one megawatt worth of solar cells, it takes 20,000 solar panels. How would you like to install 20,000 solar panels on Mars in a spacesuit and and clean the red Mars dust off of it once every Mars spring cleaning time? Those 20,000 solar panels weigh 500 tons. That's half the total capacity that the Starship could weigh as far as freight. Bottom line is it also takes up 11 football fields of the area to put enough solar cells there. A nuclear reactor would weigh 30 tons. The solar panels would weigh 50 tons. Now, what everybody forgets is the sun is two and a half times dimmer on Mars,
0: Mm-hmm.
3: solar panels on earth are not worth much they are worthless on Mars all yeah, the but... uh, landers there about half of them froze to death in the winter because they couldn't make enough solar power to keep their batteries warm and the reason they couldn't in many cases was the Mars dust nobody to clean the solar panels. the two nuclear powered rovers are working fine and one of them has been working several years
0: mm-hmm. So is he being based in California? Maybe the reason why he's against using nuclear power, or has he actually seriously considered nuclear?
3: He's never said anything bad about nuclear, but Uh Elon is a salesman and he wants to sell his solar cells.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And his batteries.
3: (laughs) And his batteries to make up for the fact that his solar cells don't work at night and they Mm -hmm. don't work at sunrise and sunset. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you've got a thousand watt solar panel, it really puts out 250 watts when you average it through the day, you lose four to one. That's yeah. also true on Mars because access to Mars is about the same as the
0: Earth. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that talking about the spin-offs, I mean, NASA used to put out a document that was just simply called spin-offs, where they talked about all the new medical technologies. You know, for example, having a desktop blood analyzer with a little centrifuge and things like that really cool things that they developed as a result of the space program that they could actually now use on earth and it was true they, they i mean they had hundreds and hundreds of examples but to me it's a little bit like saying well you know i got this really great hat when i went to mexico and someone asks you well why did you go to mexico oh well, look at the great hat i got well, you didn't go to Mexico to get the hat. That happened to be an, a benefit. And it's a great hat that you can use now back in Canada or the United States. But you went to Mexico for a human reason, namely for a vacation. And, and I think that when they try to justify the space program based on spinoffs, these are just really kind of incidental things. I mean, it's great that they give a big advantage, but you don't go to space for spinoffs. I mean, you know, our astronauts don't risk their lives to develop better ball bearings. I mean, surely the spin-offs argument as the primary one, which many people put forward for going into space, for going to Mars, surely the spinoffs argument isn't really very good. Well, that
1: really leads me to the, the next subject that I think our listeners would be interested in if the three of us have answers to questions about the rovers. As Don said, we've had these vehicles traveling around Mars for quite some years getting data. But I think uh, the amount of data is very small. The amount of the land area that we've covered on Mars, I think while we landed a few rovers successfully and they're sending back information, it's very little. I don't really think we know much about Mars. And to me, if you could, Don, do you know what kind of acreage or, or Tom, maybe you know, have these rovers covered and, and tested the soil.
3: Spirit and Opportunity were the first ones. They had caterpillar treads on them, and I think they made uh, two or three miles of tracks apiece. Took pictures, drilled into rocks, but they were starved for energy because they had solar, saddle, solar oh, cells. Solar right.
0: cells, right?
3: Whereas the big ones are the size of a car, and they've, one of them has been going for several years, and the other one, I think, has been going for one year, and they're both nuclear-powered, and they'll be going for 10 years at least.
0: The anthropologist are right with, he made a suggestion the other day, he thought that, in fact, it was too early for us to be going to Mars, because like Chris Hadfield, he felt the, the concern with the huge distance was that when we get there, the astronauts would all be dead if we use today's technology. But he was saying, well, maybe we should send cockroaches first. And if they didn't survive, (laughs) we wouldn't send people quite yet. Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut who was the commander of the International Space Station, he said that right now it's as if people were using a canoe in the Seine River near Paris and they're successfully paddling around and they say, wow, we can do this. Let's go to Australia. So, I mean, what do you think, Don, should we get really good at living on the moon first?
3: We have had orbiters on Mars since 1996, and the surface of Mars is better mapped than the surface of the Earth because there's no oceans on Mars. There have been many tests done from orbit. What they did is they landed the rover's on the places that the orbiters determine are the most interesting. Now on um, the trip to Australia, I don't think that Chris has done his mathematics very well. The uh, time to go to Mars is eight months, and there have been two identical twins that have spent over a year on the space station. and Their health suffered pretty badly from the weightlessness. But I've dealt with that problem in my proposal anyway. So I uh, reject his argument, but it's too far. Uh It's uh, really no different than a space station crossed with a lunar landing.
0: Yeah. One of the things I wonder though, is mean time between failure for actual components on the space station don't have to be that long because they can fly up resupply missions and they do all the time. Are we yet at a point where you can have a three-year mission practically in total when you count the time to get there, the time on the planet, then the time to wait till the planets are lined up so you can fly back? Do we have enough good, solid engineering components to last for three years?
3: I don't think there's any particular problem with that. Uh, Most of the stuff on the space station has been there for 10 years. Mm, they had yeah. occasional electronic failures and they, they bring up new equipment. Most cases it's not practical to fix it there, uh-huh. primarily because you don't have a stock of electronic parts that you can find a resistor if you got a blown resistor. But mm-hmm. I think that the redundancy with uh, all components, not just electronics, is going to be plenty adequate to take care of that problem. But you're absolutely right. If you, let's say you missed the window to uh, get your order placed for uh, going to <laughs> earth, you may have to wait seven years to get the next one.
0: Or seven months.
3: No, I'm talking about seven years. Oh, is three, that right? Three, well, actually six years, three six years three. plus three years. In other wow. words, one, one round trip is is uh, just is almost three years huh Wow so if you That's order incredible. parts
0: oh you I might see. get
3: them sooner than three years but it, it might be uh, it could be six depending upon whether you just barely miss a, an order.
0: There was a project out of the Netherlands it's just recently been canceled but it was called Mars one and their objective was to send people to Mars to stay. And if the first four survived, then they'd send another four and another four and another four. And it was interesting because they admitted that the risk was very, very high. I think some people were saying it was maybe a 50% chance of dying on the mission, but they had lots of good volunteers. It was interesting. And they weren't people that were losers that just wanted to throw their life away. There was one guy, for example, who had a PhD from MIT in astronautics. He was a champion bicyclist. He was a handsome young man. And these people were prepared to take the risk. And there were hundreds of them. So it sounds like dangerous or not, you know, these people are prepared to go. So I don't know, Jay, do you think we should let them? Or is this something that's just way too dangerous at this point for society to tolerate?
3: Well,
1: what you just said, Tom, is is new to me and, you know, very exciting. And I, I guess I understand it. People are willing to be the first space travelers, even though... The, the chance of surviving is not high. Well, I mean, think about the people who parachuted into Normandy in D-Day or, you know, uh, all the people that have uh, fought the terrible wars the United States has uh, gotten into. So uh, the world over, there are people willing to take great risks for, for great rewards. So uh, I yeah. see that as a good thing. What I want the average listener to understand is, The problems and the complexity of getting a human onto Mars and surviving are huge. There's so much more than sending a man to walk on the moon. I would say, in my opinion, probably a hundred times more complex. But all they hear over and over again is Elon Musk sending off a rocket and having the Rocket come back and reuse it. And uh, they think of that as really a big wow. I don't think of it as a a big wow is all. I think it is one tiny, talk about, you know, Neil Armstrong's comment, one step for for me. And then you got the whole, all of mankind when he stepped onto the moon. I see everything that Elon Musk is doing with rocketry to be a very, very tiny uh, step on the way to Mars.
0: Yeah. I, I just add one thing about the Mars One mission. It was kind of interesting. They were pretty professional about it. They were based in the Netherlands, but they had doctors and PhDs in engineering from literally all over the world working, and they interviewed the astronaut potential people, and they asked them one of the questions, part of the assessment process, was to tell the world why they would risk their life to do this mission, and it was interesting because many of the arguments were like what I was saying earlier, they were excited about the possibility of starting a new civilization, totally independent, or mostly independent from earth, where they could have real participatory democracy, where they could experiment with all kinds of new ideas in society. And this was their major driver, the idea that they could start a new civilization independent of earth. Like Don, do you feel that drive? Would you like to see that happen?
3: I certainly would. Before we leave the subject to Neil Armstrong, I would like to point out that he had a full week on his way to the moon to think about his first words and he could have done a better job.
0: <laughs> Apparently he missed one word and he, he didn't well, admit it at first, it, yeah.
3: That's right, he claimed he missed the word. I listened to the transcript, he blew it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I like the idea of, to use the Star Trek motto, motto going where no man has gone before, yeah. There'll be plenty of people that'll jump at a chance to go there. One of the things, apparently, I am the only one that has considered the significance of the fact that just because you do, got to Mars doesn't mean you're going to get back. And that even if you are going to get back, you got to wait for 540 days on the planet before you can come back. Mm-hmm. and that makes a phenomenal difference in the settlement patterns. The oh, first yeah. trip is is not a eight months each way it is a thousand and sixteen days It's yeah. almost three years because of the extra time you got to stay on the ground it means yeah. you got to pack a little more lunches than you thought you had to pack
0: <laughs> You know I got so excited I forgot to keep track of the time We've got to go for a break for commercial so we'll be right back. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America at Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order
4: of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash outloud.
2: Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell, Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
0: So we're back with Don Pauly and my co-host Jay Lear. We caught up with Don between presentations at a conference. Don Pauly, of course, has done some interesting calculations concerning a trip to Mars. I think you had another question, Jay.
1: Yeah, Don, in your work, you've pointed out all kinds of things that we have to manufacture on the moon Phobos and why that's a better place to make things than Mars. And you talked about growing food on Phobos. You already, earlier in the show, talked about the fact that we've got to feed whoever goes up there for well over a year before they can come back. That just seems like just too big of an ask to be done. So what would be going on on Phobos while these... uh, The people are on Mars itself.
3: Well, I would expect them to be working if they expect to be fed. My proposal, by way of the back of the moon, would land a spaceship, actually a freighter, on Phobos and unload about 200 tons of freight. And that freight would be a prefabricated nuclear power plant as well as prefabricated dwellings and greenhouses. And when I use the word greenhouse, it doesn't really have windows in it because the sun is almost as worthless on Phobos as it is on Mars. So you would have to have the ability to grow food. My theory was you've got 18 months to work before you can go back. So therefore you can be building greenhouses probably raising potatoes and rabbits, and starting to come up with an agricultural economy on the satellite.
0: Wow, so you'll have Martian rabbits.
3: (laughs) Well, Um, it just seems like an awful
0: lot
1: to ask. Now, let me just say, I absolutely believe that we'll get to Mars, we'll have a colony on, on Mars, and everything that you've discussed will happen. But I think it will be a minimum of 30 years. And that everything that Elon Musk talks about getting there anytime soon, or the people who also have rocket companies that compete with him, that their their time frame is absolutely ridiculous, in, in my opinion. And looking at the many complex problems that have to be solved, many of which you've described uh, is, is a, at least a 30-year timeline rather than a single decade.
3: Well, I would disagree a little bit with your comparison of the complexity relative to the, the moon program. I think uh, this is only 10 times worse and not 100. So, Elon so is, a has got a rocket. <clears throat> that twice as big as the Saturn V. And so that makes a big difference. Using his plan as best as I can determine it, he will never get to Mars and settle it. But what he's done, he's built the biggest possible rocket that is practical to build. That needed to be done first. He is capable of doing all the things that I have done, but These things have been totally neglected. A lot of the things that I'm proposing need to be worked on right now so that they are ready when the rocket is ready.
0: A lot of people think that we should just bypass the moon and go right to Mars. Robert Zubrin is one of those people. Do you agree with Robert, or do you think we should settle the moon first?
3: Well, I used to think that the moon should be settled first and then go to Mars. My calculations indicates that the moon is a tourist destination, because it does not have any carbon. Carbon exists only on the moon as a trace element. You can't make methane for rocket fuel without carbon. so all you can do is, if you can find ice on the moon, you can make hydrogen and oxygen out of it. But that is not well suited as rocket fuel. It can be used, but it's not preferred.
0: Why is that?
3: Primarily because hydrogen is too light. Hydrogen weighs something like one thirteenth as much as water when it's liquid, and so you've got to have a huge tank to haul the hydrogen around. Mm. And huge tanks are short in supply. I do not really see any great utility of the moon for Mars exploration.
1: I've talked to a lot of my friends at NASA and. They feel if we go to Mars, we would be launching from the moon. What is your opinion there?
3: It's not worth landing there and then taking back off again. You're better just to bypass the moon, go straight to Mars. Mm -hmm. I used to think that there would be things like uh, rail guns that could be used on the moon to help on launch costs. But once I did the calculations on them, uh, they weren't worth the trouble. The problem is the moon doesn't have the materials that are useful for making fuel. It's just not worth stopping there. You just as well, instead of waiting a week to cruise to the moon, eight months and get to Mars. And you got a lot yeah. more to work with.
0: Yeah, Robert Zubrin says that all the ingredients required to establish a complete independent civilization exist on Mars. But that's not the case on the moon. For one thing, I know they don't have nitrogen on the moon. Do you think that's one of the reasons that we would use Mars as our new civilization first? Because we can do everything there.
3: I didn't mention that, but I was also well aware that there is no nitrogen on the moon. And there's plenty of it on Mars. Three percent of the atmosphere is nitrogen. You can make fertilizer on Mars by compressing the atmosphere and combining it with the hydrogen and water ice. So you can could, you could fertilize plants.
0: Mm -hmm. I understand there's also brief periods of flowing water on Mars, like artesian wells that flow for a short distance, perhaps 50 yards or so, and then immediately sublime into the atmosphere. Is that what you think is happening when they see these river channels that used to apparently contain some flowing fluid?
3: Well, the Grand Canyon on Mars is several times deeper than the Grand Canyon in Arizona, and it was not carved by wind. There mm-hmm. were huge floods that had to have carved it. And I have heard reports of brief flowing water. But as you correctly pointed out, it proceeds to boil at room temperature on Mars. And before long, it is all evaporated. Mm-hmm. So, so what be. happens is you have to dig down to where you find buried ice. Now, the average temperature on Mars is 63 to grow 63 degrees below zero centigrade. So any ice that's there stays ice and it will not evaporate. But Mm. if it warms up and melts, turns into water, it's gone.
0: Yeah, I, I was reading that on the equator in the summer at Mars, it can get up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So there must be times when it would stay liquid for a short period until it, as you say, boils into the atmosphere.
3: I think it can get a little bit over that. I think, I don't remember, 35 centigrade, which is uh, about 95 Fahrenheit. I don't wow. have that exact correlation there. But yeah. on the 4th of July, if you will, at high noon on the equator, you, you would not need but, a jacket.
1: Would anybody landing on Mars and surviving be unable to move around without a space suit and without some system? to get over the incredibly low average uh, temperature. That alone uh, seems like a very difficult problem to uh, overcome, surviving in that cold temperature without oxygen for any period of time.
3: Well, you would be dead in a couple of minutes without a spacesuit because of uh, no oxygen and low pressure both. And you'd also be freezing to death. You've made my case for the
1: absurdity of colonizing Mars. I mean, when we think of a colony, we actually, you know, go back to when we built a colony here in the United States, came over from Europe and had colonies that began living in the United States. But that's not what a colony on Mars would be like at all. I mean, you have described the situation that makes my case for the absurdity of even trying to put people on Mars because they could never lead any kind of a, of a normal life for a single day.
3: Well, that's not true. The first thing that I said is that prefabricated habitat would be unloaded. You put them together in the spacesuit. And after you stay in, you use the spacecraft for your temporary home for a few days until you get your first habitat built. Then you've got yourself a small house on Mars. You can go inside, close the door, pressurize it, take your spacesuit off.
1: That's fine. So you can have a house to live in. But you're working. You're not going to be, right. But you're not going to be able to explore, uh, explore the planet and really go any distance from your house i mean it
0: just seems ridiculous
3: well that's not true you can uh, you can drive your tesla anywhere on mars you want to go <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. i don't know if you guys heard of the series red mars blue mars green mars by kim stanley robinson and for people to get a real idea as to what it would be like to live on mars in the near future I really suggest people read Red Mars. And, you know, it's interesting because I think the biggest threat to the astronauts, as described in that book, was psychological. I mean, they just about go mad, you know, because it's (laughs) it's very bleak surrounding, to say the least. And they they go into quite a lot about the psychological issues as to how hard it would be to live on Mars where your home planet is a tiny little blue speck in the sky and the sun, as you say, is two and a half times weaker, but also this bleak, you know, reddish, reddish environment everywhere. The guys that they were talking about in the, in the story practically went mad. I mean, you need a pretty special kind of person to live in that environment on Mars, don't you think, Don?
3: Well, it's, it's worse than that. Eight months in a 50-foot-long section of a rocket that's 27 feet in diameter is going to cause the worst cabin fever exposure that anybody's ever had. They're going to be oh, glad God. to get off of that thing. Can you oh, yeah. imagine being cooped up in that for eight months at a time? Basically, yeah. if you will, like, the, like a 727 cabin or 737 cabin. Yeah. And then once you get on the ground... You look around and it's desert in every direction. you got to get to work on your house. And it's going to take a a special person. There's no change in your mind. Once that rocket lights the fire, you're not coming back before 34 months is out, no matter what.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. uh,
3: There's no quitting.
0: One of the popular science magazines had a headline that said, all of the ingredients for homicide exist on a trip to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which-
1: <laughs> you know, if, the, uh, if this was a debate between the three of us and I'm the guy who says we shouldn't waste our time trying to go to Mars, I think the listeners would vote for me as the winner because you, <laughs> the two of you who are pro-exploring Mars just keep bringing up insurmountable problems that are making me right. Now, I want to move off uh, this discussion just a little bit to uh, the money that Elon Musk and his competitors are making by selling trips into space. And I think their people think, oh, wow, <clears throat> we can take a tourist into space and they can be weightless for some number of minutes. My feeling is that that's nothing but a publicity stunt that has no bearing and uh, no advantage to the whole concept of going to Mars, and Musk does it just to make more money for his stock in Tesla by acting like he's doing something that is constructive on the way to Mars. What are your feelings about that?
3: Well, in the first place, uh, his Tesla stock doesn't have much to do with his space adventures, but bozos is somewhat of a clown for giving people <laughs> five minutes of weightlessness uh don't think he's done much except be a high uh, priced amusement ride yeah. and so i i don't support uh, these kind of expeditions now on the other hand elon is a businessman he's gonna run one of his space capsules around the back side of the moon and he's found a japanese billionaire to pay for the trip i don't have any problem with that he's testing his rocket out
0: yeah i'm still of the mind that we better get good at living on the moon before we go anywhere else you know like i would see a step-by-step approach to mars we get good at living on the moon comfortable you know we can actually survive in an equally bleak environment although in fact you know you have the beautiful earth and the sky which is at least one good thing and it's not as it's not as dark i mean it's it's all it's the same brightness of course of the sun as the earth but i would think that going to the moon establishing a little colony there a scientific research station or whatever maybe living on the back side of the moon to give people experiences true isolation the second step i would see is going to the lagrangian point and actually fiddling around there and getting comfortable then maybe going to a passing asteroid for a few days to actually land on it and encounter and then fly back to the earth and then maybe setting out to Mars. I mean, Don, do you think that kind of step-by-step approach, which would probably take 30 years, do you think that would be perhaps more likely to succeed and less dangerous?
3: Well, there's not much difference between Mars and the moon. Uh, Gravity on Mars is twice as strong as it is on the Moon. Both, but and the Mars has a little atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I don't really see any great benefit on stopping on the Moon. Now my proposal, it is essential. My method will not work, and for that matter, you will not get to Mars unless you go on the backside of the Moon and establish a space station at the L2 point.
0: Yeah, can you explain
3: that? L2 is a Lagrangian point. There are five of them, but L2 is the only one we need to consider right now. On the back side of the Moon, roughly one-sixth further away than the Moon is, gravitational attraction of the Earth and the Moon combined to allow objects to remain stationary at that point with no rocket thrust, and it can be used as a fuel dump, and it's a perfect place to build a space station. So, what you can do there is you can send rockets up from, from Earth with fuel and people on there, and they can live in the space station until the time comes to go to Mars. Does that makes sense. Well, I,
1: well, it, I understand what you're saying about this uh, point in space but I don't see what the value of it is to then have have it as a a dump of of equipment to then go to Mars. Is that your point, that you can store things there before you need them at Mars?
3: It's going to take about a dozen trips to bring enough stuff up to that L2 point to fill a freighter and a starship. And those two will be necessary to settle Mars.
1: Why can't you do it from Earth?
3: Because you waste most of your fuel climbing from Earth to L2. It's almost a free trip from L2 to Mars, but it's a horribly wasteful trip from Earth to Mars.
0: Okay. uh, Understood. Understood. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's worth emphasizing to people that The big energy expenditure in a trip to Mars is getting out of Earth's gravity well. I mean, that's, you know, from a distance point of view, it's not so significant to worry about the distance to Mars, except for human survival and equipment survival. But from an energy perspective, if we're out of the gravity well and moving around in the solar system, we can take advantage of small amounts of thrust and, of course, the planets themselves as gravitational assist. So, Don's idea of starting at the Lagrangian point on the other side of the moon, I mean, that would be, what, maybe a tenth the energy to get to Mars is if we start on Earth, Don?
3: It's on that order. Uh, (laughs) My calculations indicate that if you refuel a starship in low Earth orbit and it goes to L2, you only get one-sixth of the freight that it's capable of. Everything else is burnt up in propellant getting you to L2. Mm-hmm. so it's uh, Tom,
1: I understand that. Tom, would you please define for our listeners what a Lagrangian point is?
3: I'll do it. There are Lagrangian points for any two large objects in the solar system. The one that the Webb telescope used is the Sun-Earth Lagrangian point. That is the one that's about a million miles from Earth. Okay. And
0: those those are areas where if you put something, it won't get attracted away from or towards any celestial body. It'll sit there.
3: It will not fall up. It won't fall down. It won't fall left. It won't fall right. Just hovers mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And that is a very important property. If you want to dump a bunch of supplies off come back a month later you hope the supplies are still there and they will be
0: yeah now that's due to the gravitational dynamics of having these two bodies at certain locations how many lagrangian points are there let's say for the earth moon sun system just two Hmm.
3: the one i'm talking about is the earth moon lagrangian point and the moon's two hundred and forty thousand miles away and Roughly one-sixth of that on the back side of the moon is uh, L2. And on the front side, by that same amount is uh, is L3. Okay. So you uh, could
0: actually maybe put L3 a space hotel.
3: L3 is not useful very much. Well, it's not for our purposes.
0: Could, could you put a space hotel at one of the Lagrangian points?
3: Well, you could put a space hotel at any of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well that, maybe we, should, maybe we should do that first. You get a pretty incredible view. Well, we just have a minute left. Jay, did you have some extra questions?
1: Well, I have no more questions, but this has been uh, fascinating. And uh, as you know, I'm the skeptic. I am not in favor of putting humans on Mars. And uh, the two of you who know so much more than I on the topic, have convinced me that I'm more right than I even thought I was when the program began.
0: (laughs) Ah, gee. Well, you know, as I say, there's lots of people who feel the drive to explore. And if you look at civilizations that did not explore, they didn't do too well. I mean, Stephen Pine, for example, from the university of Arizona, he basically says that without the drive to explore Western civilization becomes static and inward looking and it's unhealthy. So I think the drive to explore and move into space is is pretty significant, but I totally agree with you, Jay, that this is way too dangerous to do in the next 10 years. Don, just to end off, what would you say is a safe enough time frame to send a mission to Mars?
3: Next orbital alignment.
0: Whoa, you'd go that soon, eh?
3: (laughs) And I think that should be um, 28th of June this year, but uh, I don't know if his rocket's going to be ready. (laughs) The next one will be two years later, 7th of August.
0: Yeah, well, that's a great note to end off on.
3: (laughs) One last point. Jay's the one that's been talking about the easy problems with spacesuits and stuff like that. I'm I'm the one that spent all the time on the hard problems.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, as Captain Picard would say, engage. So we're (laughs) off Mars, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Anyway, so that was an interesting interview with mathematician and space expert Don Pauly who's talked about going to Mars and the feasibility of it. So this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story.